Good morning, everyone. Hello. Hello. We're missing a few people, but they might just be waiting for the recording. How you guys doing? Good morning. Good okay. morning. <laughs> you guys enjoy chapter six through ten? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Good. Awesome. Were you all able to access the um, the recording from last week? I don't know. You maybe you didn't need to because you were here in person. But did anybody try clicking on that? No one. That's I okay. saw it posted, but I didn't. Yeah. Okay. Well, I will post this um, just like I posted that. So hey, Olivia. I did. I did. Oh, I, you did. I, and it and it worked. I don't know how I perfect get where I get, but I'm not okay. Sad. Yeah, I wanted to just. I was just curious if anybody um, tried to get to it. I didn't get any comments that it wasn't easily accessed. So, just checking. So, chapter six through ten. We'll do this the same way we did the last. We'll kind of just journey through each chapter, and I'll make sure that you guys. Um, get information on like the the main points that I want you to uh, notice as we move through each chapter and we'll discuss and see where it goes so with the first chapter we're working on was the tiger swami um, <laughs> let me find it in my book really quick so I have a lot of underlines there is my tiger swami. There he is. Okay. So, um, anybody want to summarize it, or I can go. I can summarize it too, unless anybody wants to volunteer. I got out of there. The key for okay. me was that he was going to go to America and write a book because the tiger. Or is that, is that the chapter where the tiger swami? where um, he told him that he correspond with people in the West, which I was taking to the United States, and he tells him he's going to write a book. Yeah, um, I do remember that. And honestly, off the top of my head, I can't remember if that came in this one or in The Levitating Saint. But I'm That's sure I'll find it. The next yeah. chapter. Was it The Levitating? I think that was the next one where um, he was Oh, that is right. You're yeah. right. I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay, but you found a very interesting point there where it was already like this information was given to him that um, kind of foreshadowed his future of going to America and sharing and bringing a lot of people to this yogic wisdom. Um, this chapter, I enjoyed this chapter. It's, it's the chapter where Chandi, one of um, Yogananda's friends is like, let's go see this tiger Swami. And, we know that all of Yogananda's friends are kind of like onto this thing where like, they're like, oh, Mukunda really likes these saints. Like he's on this journey. So they're always like giving him information about where like the newest or coolest guru or, you know, um, spiritual person or saint is, is doing things that are interesting. And it, it all kind of like leads him on this journey to discover different aspects of, um, of the divine and of what he's looking for in a guru. So um, at this point, they're going to 
um, Sohong, who is the Tiger Swami's um, house, and they're let in and they're told about the story about, you know, this Tiger Swami who spent a lot of his years um, conquering right. tigers. <laughs> yeah. And I think one of the first things that stood out to me in this chapter was basically the lesson being that the power of the mind. So, you know, um, at one point in this chapter, the prince who had asked him to fight his own giant tiger, you know, um, Begum, Raja Begum, I think was the name of the tiger. Um, he said, like, how did you do this? I mean, aren't you just raised on rice? Like, you don't, you weren't raised in a way where you got the nutrition to get this strong. And he tells a story about how as a, as a young person, he was actually very weak and feeble. And like, there was no way he would have been able to accomplish this. Um, and, and he used the powers of his mind to change his body and to get stronger. So I have underlined here, those who are bodily, but not mentally stalwart may find themselves fainting at the mere sight of a wild beast bounding freely in the jungle. So he's even saying that even with strength and legs of a tree, like he's described, you know, if your mind isn't in the right place for conquering these tigers, there's no way it's going to happen. He says, mind is the wielder of muscles. The force of a hammer blow depends on the energy that is applied. The power expressed by a man's bodily instrument depends on his aggressive will and courage. And that was um, a part of the essence of this chapter is just the power of the mind and how he actually accomplished his, uh, his popularity as this tiger conqueror. Um, let's see. Outward frailty has a mental origin in a vicious cycle. The habit bound body thwarts the mind. If the master allows himself to be commanded by a servant, the latter becomes autocratic. The mind is similarly enslaved by submitting to bodily dictation. And so it's definitely pulling apart like mind and body and giving us a perspective on how we can, um, empower ourselves through what we're thinking. Um, he says it was by indomitable persistency in thoughts of health and strength that I overcame my handicap. So remember is he says in my earliest ambitions to fight tigers, my will was mighty, but my body was feeble. And he says it was by his persistent thoughts of health and strength that I overcame my handicap. And that speaks a lot to like, in this day and age, I think we get a lot from like the secret. I don't know if you've ever read the secret and the power of the mind and affirmations and intentions and the power of thinking a certain thought over and over and over until it's suppressed on your subconscious mind. And that kind of is um, speaking to that. So um, over time though, this tiger Swami ends up switching gears and no longer fighting, you know, the actual physical tigers, but the inner prowlers. So he becomes more of a, a saint and starts working on the spiritual side of himself and working on the inner prowlers. So like our inner tigers, um, which he says is, is by far more um, of a goal that we all should have in mind. Um, let's see. What else? Another mention in this chapter is when the father comes to the tiger Swami, warning him of um, 
of what a, a saint had said or an ominous prediction from the lips of a saint saying that he would be gravely ill, uh, harmed and get an illness from having this, the next fight that he has with the tiger. And of course the tiger Swami is like, I've got this, like, look how many times I've done it. I'm strong. I can do this. And, um, the warnings are kind of tinged with like this understanding that there's karma coming back around to him. Um, he says, son, I have words of warning. I would save you from the coming ills produced by the grinding wheels of cause and effect. So those grinding wheels of cause and effect being karma. Um, and wasn't that where he was upset because you normally don't talk back or you don't not do what your parents say? Yeah, I, Mukunda and Chandi were both kind of like surprised by this because he didn't listen to his father's warnings and he went ahead and said like, are you a fatalist father? Should superstition be allowed to discolor the powerful waters of my activities? Um, he says, I'm no fatalist son, but I believe in the just law of retribution as taught in the Holy scriptures. There is resentment against you in the jungle family. Sometime it may act to your cost. And he continues to just say, you astonish me. Uh, you well know that tigers are beautiful, but merciless. My blows may inject some slight sanity of consideration into their thick heads. So um, it's suggesting that he's doing something that is causing um, this cause and effect that's going to eventually come back around. And I don't know about you, but when you read the story about, about him subduing the tiger, you, I feel bad for the tiger. Yeah. I'm like, this is so cruel, you know? So obviously like we as yogis, one of our main goals is ahimsa or nonviolence towards any living being or thing. So it kind of makes sense from a yogi's perspective that, you know, this is going to eventually, he did, and we talked about this last time, um, accomplish cities remember that word spiritual powers through either a past life and maybe his growth as a human towards enlightenment he's accomplished this power of understanding the mind and knowing that he can accomplish amazing things through the power of his mind but he's gotten caught up in the popularity and um and the celebrity of like overcoming these tigers and He's, but in that, and in that proudness and in that ego, because ego is attached to karma, he's creating this rebound effect in karmic nature that's going to come back around to him. And that was the, um, that was the warning that his father and the saint had given. A little bit later in the chapter, he goes to, he goes out of town, not intending to fight um, Raja but in the town that he goes, which I can't remember the name of, the prince there seeks him out because I guess he's got quite a following. He's bought a lot of tigers and they're just so impressed. So people know where he is. He's kind of a celebrity. And, um, and the prince there, who is Prince of Kuch Bihar, um, invites him to come to the palace because he wants to know how he's doing this. He says, you're just a Calcutta Bengali nurtured on white rice of city folk. Be frank, please. Are you just fighting old, spineless, opium-fed animals? So he's very suspicious of what uh, Sohong can do, and he's challenging him. He says, I have like this, the most powerful tiger for you to fight. Either fight him, I'll give you all these prizes, or if you fail, I'm going to you know, drag your name through the mud and you'll be known as a, a fake pretty much. So 
of course, he accepts the challenge and, um, and he goes ahead and follows through with fighting with this tiger. Um, and there's, in the meantime, a lot of talk about, like, this is like a demon tiger um, who's been sent to, to humble him because he needs humbling. There's um, suspicion that uh, this tiger is, you know, changes shape during the night and turns into a tiger during the day. And so there's a lot of, like, inquiry around this next um, fight that Yogananda's, or sorry, Sohang's about to have. And sure enough, when he goes to fight the tiger, the tiger does injure him. It bites him in the hand. He's able to subdue it, tie him up with chains, but the tiger breaks free of the chains, grabs him by the shoulder one last time. He officially beats the tiger and he wins. And of course he does get showered with riches and you know his claim to fame is promoted even more but he takes a spiritual change he, he says a spiritual change has entered his heart and it seemed that with my final exit from the cage I had chosen closing the door on my worldly ambitions so I have a large trash truck passing out if you can hear that okay um, he also suffered, like the um, saint had warned, from the injury and also six months of blood poisoning from his injuries. And as soon as he was well enough to leave, he returned to his native town and started fighting the inner tigers. Um, he searched for that original saint that gave that prediction who became his guru. And that guru said... Um, Subdue the beasts of ignorance roaming in the jungles of the human mind. You are used to an audience. Let it be a galaxy of angels entertained by your thrilling mastery of yoga. And so there is the lesson for um, Mukunda and his friend Chandi there who get to be in the presence of this saint who has a story of his, you know, ego and karma coming around to get him and, and then his lesson in instead of outwardly fighting the tigers, fighting the inner tigers and, and taking on yoga. Any questions about this chapter? No, I liked how he um, referred to like the inner prowlers as um, like also a tamer of wild passions. Like he described them as wild passions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I like this story too. Yeah, it was an entertaining chapter for sure. Okay, that's all I have for this chapter, unless anybody else has any thoughts or comments. Um, just the, on the last page, is that him, is that the tiger? Is that him saying he will teach you to subdue the beast of ignorance roaming in jungles of the human mind? I believe that that, that is his guru. Um, so, so Hong okay. coming back to his native town, seeking out that guru that had made that claim that he would be injured. He says something like, Oh, if I could only find him longing, my longing was sincere enough that one day that saint arrived, that saint that made that prediction. And that saint said, enough of tiger taming, come with me. I will teach you to subdue the beasts of ignorance roaming in jungles of human mind. So, um, he says he was then initiated into a spiritual path by my saintly guru. 
opening up the soul doors, rusty and resistance with long disuse. Um, and then it said he actually set out to training in the Himalayas after that. So, um, so he then turned from, you know, his outward expressions from what he'd been able to accomplish to then working on himself inwardly instead of outwardly. Was that the lesson he was to learn? Um, I'd say the lesson to be learned through this chapter is probably twofold. So one is the powers of the mind. So as readers, we get to um, see an example of a yogi who was born feeble and weak and had this desire to fight tigers. And maybe this desire to fight tigers was planted in him as a young person because his past life had him on this journey of enlightenment. And this was part of his journey was to fight these tigers and learn this lesson and pay this karma of like going deep into the ego, fighting tigers, gaining popularity, and then becoming injured so that he would then understand the laws of karma, finding his guru, and then deciding instead of fighting outward tigers to then just fight the inner tigers. And so it gives us as readers and also Mukunda and Chandi that the, um, the lesson in, you know, we have plenty of tigers roaming inside. And like Kate, Katie said, like the passions, the wild passions we have and the desires we have, um, those are the, the, the tigers, so to speak, that we all can battle um, or conquer. And that is the real spiritual journey here. Well, I guess that's also true that um, just like he had to be mentally prepared to take on the real tigers, to a certain extent, you have to be mentally prepared to take on your own inner tigers. Right. <laughs> because it's yeah. easy to ignore them as well. Oh, of course. Yeah. And not face them off. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, so chapter seven, we get to now meet the levitating saint. Um, so Makunda and his friend Upendra are discussing Bajruri Mahasaya, who was able to reign several feet in the air through his mastery of pranayamas or methods of controlling um, prana. So you are mostly all familiar with pranayama, which is. Um, one of the eight limbs of yoga, which is something breath practices that are then known to affect the energy in our body. And um, we get a little asterisk at the bottom describing that methods of controlling life force or prana through regulation of breath. And bastrika, which they mention in the first page of this chapter, being one of those breath practices, um, helping to make the mind steady. Um, levitation is explained pretty matter-of-factly here. You're just like, oh, okay, that's what it is. Got it. Um, it says levitation is um, an accepted phenomenon in India. Um, let's see. I know they describe it right here. Where is it? Something about adjusting your pranayama to... Um, leave the grossness of the body. I'll find it in a minute. But um, in this chapter, oh, here it is. A yogi's body loses its grossness after use of certain pranayamas. So this physical aspect of our physical body is, you know, kind of shed for the um, 
shed as we work on our prana and our body can then it says levitate or hop about like a leaking leaping frog and remember early on in the beginner chapters where one of the gurus had actually been sitting in meditation and made a an identical match of his body to go locate that guy down by the lake so similar concept manipulating prana and understanding um how you know energy works in order to manipulate it it also says um, even saints who do not practice a form or yoga have been known to levitate during a state of intense devotion to God. And we talked last time about the different paths of yoga and one of them is bhakti. So bhakti was the type of yoga that's all about devotion, which I'd say is what Yogananda or Mukunda is. He's definitely a bhakti yoga. Like he just wants God. He doesn't talk about, you know, doing yoga postures much or, you know, stretching or moving his body around. He doesn't talk about much karma yoga or even jnana yoga. He spends a lot of time just seeking out the divine. Um, and so just remembering those, those four paths of yoga being um, any one of them leading to enlightenment. Um, when he gets to the house of this levitating uh, guru, there's obviously someone guarding the door. Um, I guess this guru doesn't leave his house very often except to come just out to the sidewalk. So he's been inside for like 20 years or something. And he's about to be turned away by the guard, but then the sage comes and says, let Mukunda come at will. So like he's already knows who he is. He calls him by his first name and says, come on in. Um, so he goes in. And they meditate. And at some point, um, the guru says, you often go into silence, but have you developed Anubhava? Anubhava being um, actual perception of God. He was reminding me to love God more than meditation. Do not mistake the technique for the goal, which is always a nice reminder because we talked about that. Some of you were in my meditation workshop where we talked about getting a little confused about the techniques of meditation and having to get the techniques right and forgetting the end goal of what meditation actually is. So the difference between a technique and actually the end game of meditation, which is union with God or the universe. Um, so he says, you go into silence a lot, but have you developed this connection with God? And he was reminding him to love the end goal more than the actual techniques. And at at some point I came across a story of, of a, a guru with some disciples and the guru had given the disciple a mantra to recite and said, recite this until you experience enlightenment. And so the student started reciting the mantra, reciting the mantra, reciting the mantra. And at some point of his, in his studies, he started to feel himself moving into that enhanced enlightenment state. But he was like, oh yeah, my mantra, go back to the mantra and not go into that next phase, right? Because he was so attached to the technique that he was forgetting that the technique itself was a pathway to enlightenment. So not being too attached to technique as much as you are just allowing the experience of meditation or anubhava. Um, let's see. Oh, and this is where the letters come from far off America. The sage indicated a couple thick envelopes on the table. I correspond with a few societies there whose members are interested in yoga. They are discovering India anew with a better sense of direction than Columbus. And I'm glad to help them. A knowledge of yoga like the daylight is free to all who receive it. 
And he says later on, um, I didn't underline it, but I know later on he said something like, in retrospect, you know, looking back, he had made mention of me then also being someone that carries yoga to the West as well. Later on in the chapter, another good point um, is how Mukund ends up staying with this master the whole day, even as he goes on to give a little talk to his disciples and his disciples say to him something like, you, I guess he had come from a pretty wealthy family and he'd been known to renounce that and not accept anything from his family wealth wise. And someone said, you're so amazing. Like you've forsaken great family wealth early in childhood and decided to enter this yogic path. And the saint says, you are reversing this case. I have left a few paltry rupees, a few petty pleasures for a cosmic empire of endless bliss. How then have I denied myself anything? Um, he says, I know the joy of sharing the treasure is that a sacrifice. The short-sighted worldly folk are the verily are verily the real renunciants. So he kind of flips it around and he says, like, you're actually the renunciants. You guys are accepting these little, you know, worldly treasures, whereas I'm enjoying this cosmic bliss. You guys are the ones that are actually the renunciants. He says, they relinquish an unparalleled divine possession for a poor handful of earthly toys. So he just kind of cleverly flips it around and puts it in a new perspective. He also says the divine order arranges our future more wisely than any insurance company. The world is full of uneasy believers in an outwardly security, an outward security. Um, in this chapter also, in some of the little lower notes on the first page, um, he goes into some discussions about how um, you know, yogis have been manipulating atoms and energy and had this knowledge about quantum physics way before it was being able, it was actually something that science was starting to prove and stand behind. Um, when he's talking about... Um, the, the pranayama first page, he goes um, talking about motionless in a high state of super consciousness. And in that third one down, he's talking about Jules Boys um, of the Sarbonne, a, a French psychologist. And he says, is the exact opposite of the subconscious mind as conceived by Freud. So the superconscious mind being the exact opposite of the subconscious mind and which comprises the faculties that make man really man and not just a super animal. The French savant explained that the awakening of the higher consciousness is not to be confused with hypnotism. The existence of a superconscious mind has long been recognized philosophically being in reality, the oversoul spoken of by Emerson, but only recently has been recognized scientifically. And then he references page 141, which is a ways away. But um, in that, on that page 141, we'll get to 
understand the science behind it a little bit more. He'll dive into that. So let's see if I had made any more notes here. I did make some notes about um, wanting to share Samadhi. So are you guys might have heard of Samadhi. Samadhi being like that enlightened state that we get to at the end of the eight limbs of yoga. So Samadhi is actually the eighth limb. It's that point where you reach God consciousness. And there's different types of Samadhis. There is Samadhi where you can enter and exit the state, but you still have karma and ego. So anyone, you and I could be in a deep practice of meditation and have an instant experience of samadhi, which um, we actually later on in a later chapter, um, I think maybe chapter nine, probably chapter nine, um, the saint that Mukunda's walking around with gives him a tap on the chest. Remember that um, the saint that loves the divine mother and he experiences this moment where you can see like all around him and like everything's moving in a different way. And he's like experiencing this bliss. Um, that is like a version of Samadhi where you're not actually getting rid of your karma or your ego. You're still a person that's on this journey, but you're getting that glimpse. You're kind of pulling back the curtain for a moment and seeing like where everything is actually an illusion. And then the curtain comes back down and everything gets very like, illusion again so you go back into that maya um that divine play that we're all a part of so that would be samadhi there's another word called a jivan mukta j-i-v-a-n jivan j-i-v-a-n mukta m-u-k-t-a and a jivan mukta is one who is no longer making karma but still has some karma left so maybe one or two more lives to live through to burn off their last bits of karma. So it's someone that's no longer generating karma, but they might have some leftover karma from before. Oh, one second. So that would be a Jivan Mukta. And a lot of these, um, the saints that we're hearing about are in the book are Jivan Mukta. So they are here. They've achieved such great lengths in enlightening themselves, but they still have little shreds of karma, little last duties to burn off before they can then experience full enlightenment and merge with oneness of consciousness or God. Then we have the Sida, S-I-D-D-H-A. And a Sida is one who no longer needs to reincarnate and they are self-realized masters or gurus. So in that lifetime, it could be a Jivan Mukta who sheds that last bit of karma and then becomes a Sita. And that is a guru. So that's synonymous with guru, someone who has no more karma, has no more ego. They're here completely free, living the rest of their life before then they go off to merge with divine. And then the last one I have for you is Avatar, A-V-A-T-A-R. It's not a tall blue man in the movie. And Avatar is one who chooses to reincarnate again after attaining self-realization. So say the Sita, the one who has become enlightened in this lifetime, dies or moves out of the body. And then an avatar is that being then decides to return and reincarnate again after already attaining self-enlightenment. And it's basically God just taking on human form, which would be like Buddha, Jesus, Krishna, 
Yukteswar, who you'll learn about soon in this book, who ends up being Yogananda's guru. Um, these are avatars. And by the end of the book, we also are, have the understanding that Yogananda is, has, is actually also an avatar. So he is someone who had already achieved enlightenment, but his purpose in being reborn in the body was simply to make this story. So this book being like our guide to understanding how to reach enlightenment, how to find our guru, how to go through this experience as, um, as just like modern yogis. So um, that would be an avatar. Any questions about those? Okay. Alrighty. Then in that case, we'll move on to chapter eight, which is India's great scientist, J.C. Bose. So this one's a, a neat chapter, um, Bose being a scientist who is starting to like introduce science and God or science and like and, and faith and bring them together, which is something that usually we see standing very far apart, like very clear boundaries between the two exist. And here we're bringing them together. He invented the refraction of elect a machine, an instrument for indicating the refraction of electrical waves. Um, and he was a plant physiologist. physiologist. Is that how to say that? Um, and what, he, what was really interesting about his work is he was looking to demonstrate the indivisible unity of all life, which is ultimately what yoga is, right? Yoga is yoking, is bringing together this union. And he's demonstrating that through his early scientific experience, experiments. So he came up with the Bose-Crescograph, um, which would zoom in to 10 million magnifications. So he was able to go in so closely to observe things like metals and plants and whatever he was observing. And, um, and what this did was it showed vibration pretty much and it showed the energy of whatever he was looking at. And so as we continue to read, we learn that he did this test on plants and learned or demonstrated that plants have a very sensitive nervous system and an emotional life, love, hate, joy, fear, pleasure, pain, excitability, stupor, and countless other appropriate responses to stimuli um, are as universal in plants as in animals. Um, He goes on to create his, uh, his lab, pretty much. And he says, it's not merely a laboratory, but a temple. So like I said, kind of bringing the two together. Um, he says, to my amazement, I found boundary lines vanishing and points of contact emerging between the realms of the living and non-living. Inorganic matter was perceived as anything but inert. It was a thrill under the action of multitudinous forces. So a universal re reaction seemed to bring metal, plant, and animal under common law. They all exhibited essentially the same phenomena of fatigue, depression, and depression with possibilities of recovery and of ex exaltation. So um, yeah, 
So in this chapter, we get to see basically that at this early stage, I don't know what year this was, but that he was starting to dive deeper into matter and material and demonstrate that essentially we are all made up of the same things and that plants even and inorganic material like metals even have this vibration that is reactive to external stimuli. And then we do get a little explanation here about um, when he attaches the Cresco graph to the fern and you can see all the little movements here, the energy, you can see the plant growing right before your eyes underneath this Cresco graph. And he did a couple things like touch the fern with a, a metal bar, which did certain things to the plant. He put um, chlorophyll onto it, he recovered it, he cut it or damaged it. And then he actually cut the stem and, and we got to see what death of that leaf would look like as it was detached from um, the stem. So very interesting. I know that there's a lot of books about plants. Like I think it's the life of trees or life of plants. There's books out there since that you can read if you're interested, but he did demonstrate too that trees also possess circulatory systems and how their sap movements correspond to the blood pressure of animal bodies. Um, and there's a, there are peristaltic waves issued from a cylindrical tube which extends down a tree and serves as an actual heart. Um, the Secret Life of Trees, I think that's what that book was called that someone had mentioned to me. And it's all about this sort of thing. Also about how metal responds adversely or beneficially to stimuli. So he used ink markers to register very, various reactions. Um, when metal was touched with chloroform, it was actually tin that he was using. Um, so, and then recovered as well. Um. One of the themes I saw that I really like is um, he speaks of the desire to question and understand this like ever evolving mystery of creation and that as kind of a theme. And then he also says that um, the botanist also spoke of the patience and the pursuit of truth. Mm -hmm. And that, that stuck out to me too as like a theme of this, the patience and kind of questioning and mm -hmm. um, just kind of what is in front of us. As a yeah. theme as well. I underlined that too. So that's on page 77 in my book, at least. Um, it, an unconscious theological bias was also present, which confounds ignorance with faith. And so I think we can still see that theme today too. Like um, it, I always love when I meet a doctor because they're so science-based that loves yoga and loves all this stuff too, because it's like bringing the two together and, and not that typical, I don't know, like I said, like it says here, confounds ignorance with faith, like assumes that if you have faith, you have some kind of ignorance. But here he's saying that, that they're linked, they're tied together, they're connected. There's, can science and God be separated? And here it's kind of bringing it together and saying, no, like they're together. And we, um, 
this ever-evolving mystery of creation has also implanted in us the desire to question and understand. So through many years of miscomprehension from others, I came to know that life of a devotee of science is inevitably filled with an unending struggle. It is for him to cast his life as an ardent offering, regardless gain or loss, success or failure as one. Um, so yeah, it's, it's diving into that understanding that this has all been set up for us. We're supposed to figure it out. We're supposed to be curious. We're supposed to dive into it. And it's not separate from the big, bigger picture. You can be very science-based and still um, have a lot of faith. Um, let's see, later on, what did I underline here? Later on, it just talks about a little bit about how Bose's studies have helped to develop um, fertilizers for plant growth and pharmaceuticals um, can be tested on plants and, and save the lives of like animals. In the hierarchy of yoga understanding, humans are at the top. Our lives are much more advanced and developed. Not that animals' lives don't matter, but if one were to be spared, an animal life should be spared before a human life because animals are on that evolving um, uh, reincarnation stage two. So animals are also evolving, but we are evolved beyond animal life. So they say that to be born as a human is as rare. I don't remember if it was in this book or not, but as rare as a blind sea turtle popping his head up in a hole of a piece of driftwood floating in the middle of the ocean. Like that's how rare it is for a blind sea turtle to come up for air and just happen to pop his head through a hole of a piece of driftwood floating in the ocean. Wow, that always stuck with me because it's just like, how random is that? And that's how rare it is to be born into a physical body, um, a human body, sorry. So um, at some point in here, it's speaking of using these freshwater plants called Nutella, um, often used in goldfish bowls because they virtually are identical with those of nerve fibers. So those can be studied um, instead of subjecting animals to, to tests or humans to tests when you can use uh, plants. Any other questions about this chapter? Um, I kind of do, but I'm, since you mentioned Avatar, that started me thinking, and then that kind of connects to the Tiger Swami. Um, but I'm thinking and speaking, so my question may land nowhere. But mm -hmm. um, um, since reincarnation, you know, people choose this life, correct? And then uh, to get realize, realization. But if that's the case, no matter how people warn him, um, I think Tiger Swami made the same mistake getting injured. And then in that case, why you will encounter those people who say you shouldn't do it? You know? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Like it was part, it was part of, of his path to be injured in order to learn this lesson, in order to shed that karma and to evolve. Right, but then um, why you encounter those people who says no because you will maybe those people that come in are part of your um your advancement as well because did it not give him a another shed of faith in that direction by having some premonition from a wise saint that came before and said this will happen to you um and then it happened 
And then that led him to seek out that saint because he had been given that warning prior. You know, it's kind of like it might have all been part of the bigger picture for him to have that guy come in and give him that premonition in order for him to then be like, wow, that happened. You know, that gives him a shred of faith in the direction he's going then to seek out that saint. Had that saint never said anything, who knows if after his injuries, he would have been put in the right mindset for then seeking out God or, you know, enlightenment. It's all a puzzle. And they say that um, we all have free will. And when saints come or prophets come and say like, this will happen, there's always a small shed of possibility that it will not because we do have free will. And what those saints are operating off of is our habits is just like what looks like what will happen. There's a general ripple effect out that is um, predictable, but because we all do have free will that we could change. And if Soham, the um, tiger Swami had been evolved beyond, perhaps he would have been told um, that and had enough faith to be like, you're right. I'm just going to not fight right now. I'm just going to go and seek out my saint. And that's all I need to do. But in fact, he needed that lesson of becoming injured in order to seek out. You know what I mean? Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I think that kind of summarizes that chapter for the most part. I did want to talk for a moment about one more thing because at the end of that chapter, it mentions the Vedas. Um, and I had some notes about the Vedas to share with you. Where are they? So the Vedas were the original texts. They're actually the first ones that we've actually been able to find. Um, they were written originally on palm leaves. And this is where we find information about yoga, the first bits of information about communing with God and silencing the mind and all these instructions. They were kind of hard to understand. So at some point, Patanjali came in, reorganized and made it easy to follow. And that was the eight limbs of yoga that we're all probably familiar with. But what's neat about the Vedas is they came originally from the rishis or the seers or the saints that were basically downloading this information from God or universe or whatever you want to call it. And originally they were shared orally. So they were passed down orally. And I don't know about you guys. Have you guys ever played the game telephone where you like whisper in one person's ear and it goes around and eventually whatever you started with, it changes. So by the time the last person goes, it's nothing like it started. So in order to make sure that didn't happen, the Vedas were actually orally transmitted in what they call rhymes and meters. So they had a cadence and a certain syllable to them so that um, they were shared correctly and if and remembered correctly so it was almost it was like an error trapping mechanism so that nothing could be passed down improperly um and it's the same as like computer code today like when you are coding i guess things have to be proper and if there's like one missing piece of the puzzle it goes eh, that wasn't correct go back to the source figure it out so it had to be recorded properly um 
and flawlessly if it was going to be passed down. And then eventually it was written under the palm leaves and then eventually put into books and stuff. But, um, but it's through the Vedas that we get all this, the spiritual essence of what we're basing everything off right now, where they talked about, um, things about how everything is connected. Everything is God. Um, how did God make it all look so real? Maya, all of this stuff. Um, how do we go from our individual consciousness to universal consciousness, all included in the Vedas? Um, we call it yoga philosophy and not a religion because it's like, it's like the first recordings. And then Hinduism actually adopted the Vedas into its religion. So sometimes I think people assume that yoga is like Hindu um, and the study of yoga is Hindu or Buddhist. But in fact, Hindu alone is a culture. It's not a religion. Hinduism is the religion. And Hinduism took the Vedas and said, we like this, we believe this, we're going to take this into our religion. But it does not mean that yoga is actually Hindu. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Hindu is a religion based off of the Vedas. They adopted it into its philosophy, but that doesn't mean that yoga is Hindu. Um, and then Buddhism is a spin-off of Hinduism that has, that's why a lot of what we talk about very closely aligns with Buddhist studies. If you've ever studied Buddhism, they, they're very like closely related. Buddhism is a spin-off of Hinduism because Buddha, the Buddha, um, another avatar was born into Hindu culture. So he had the influence of the Vedas of Hinduism and through him, Buddhism was developed. And that was what I wanted to just make um, you guys aware of because it did mention on page 65, the Vedas. So I just wanted you to understand um, nobody actually knows how old the Vedas are because they were orally translated for a long time before they were actually written down. Okay, any last questions about chapter eight or comments? All right, then we're going to go on to the blissful devotee and his cosmic romance. So, um, Mukunda finds his way to this master, Mahasaya, that actually lives in his old house. So as he visits this old master on the fourth story of his old house, he's feeling very reminiscent of his life with his mother, his childhood with his mother, and feeling pretty um, sad about the loss of his mother still. And this particular guru is very much so a devotee to divine mother. Remember, these are all aspects of the divine. Um, and, and it's through this master that Makunda discovers sort of the divine mother and her presence in his life. He goes to the master and he says, please, like, in my behalf, ask divine mother to visit me, like, to, to come to me at some point. And the guru agrees. He goes home and he has this vision at 10 o'clock. He's in meditation. He has this vision um, his light was suddenly lit and he has this vision of the divine mother before him telling him, I've always loved you and I will always love you. And I, I have always loved you. 
So then the next day he goes back to the guru and says like, did you hear anything? Did you hear anything? He's, he's not really letting on that he had this experience. And whether that's maybe a little bit of doubtfulness about what happened or um, I don't know, have you guys ever had an experience that you discredited later for like, oh, it was like, that was just like my mind playing tricks on me or that wasn't really anything or something happened and you just didn't give it the credit it deserved. That's what I kind of took from this um, in meditation. Maybe you've had like an enlightening moment or, you know, had a visit from a relative or something like this and you kind of discredit it. I don't know why we do it, but we do. And it, that's what I interpreted this kind of Makunda going to his master being like, Oh, that wasn't enough, you know, or that wasn't real. Like I want to know what she said to the master and the master's like, why are you messing with me? Like she visited you at 10 o'clock and he was so specific about that visit that it kind of brought him to tears. Like, wow, she really did visit me. Like he needed that extra like verification um, that it was what he thought it was. And I think we just tend to do that ourselves um, in life too. Right. And it's sometimes we don't give things the credit that they deserve because we, we doubt ourselves. Right. We have that, suspicion on like was that just my mind playing tricks on me or was that real or was it just a coincidence um, but here we have Makunda actually getting that verification like the master says she was there I know she was she came to you at 10 o'clock was that not good enough um, he spends some time with this guru they go to um, the temple of Kali and they end up going to see a movie. I can't remember what they called it. It was like a bio book or something. A motion picture. They go to see a motion picture, which a bioscope is what they called it in the book. They go to see a bioscope and Mukunda was you know, unimpressed by the bioscope. And Mahai, the master says, like, Divine Mother sees that you're not happy about this. So in a moment, the lights will go out and we can leave without having to be noticed and rude. Sure enough, that happens. At another time, I think someone had come to speak to them and they were just, like, annoying them, I guess, or interrupting their peace. And mm -hmm. Divine Mother was like, just in a moment, he'll just leave, you know. And sure enough, moments later, without even ending his thought – a conversation he just veered off and left and strangely just left them alone um, and so it gets a little bit eerie like he's really predicting these very simple things like could God really be that involved like he is omniscient uh, but is he like really involved in our small day-to-day -day matters this way and I think this chapter is saying like yes like God and I'm saying God a lot but I know like I don't know if any of you have like a different word for that, but um, spirit universe can be that involved in our life. So it's suggesting like open yourself to that possibility that maybe you can invite this level of consciousness into your life that could lead to these kind of interesting moments, like um, predictions that lights would go out and you could leave the movie theaters and simple things like that. And then um, at one point he slaps his hand over the heart of Makunda and he goes into this transforming silence and becomes an inaudible motion pictures when the sound 
apparatus goes out of order. So the divine hand by some strange miracle stifled the earthly bustle. Pedestrians as well as passing trolley cars, automobiles, carts were noiseless in transit. As though possessing an omnipresent eye, I beheld the scenes that were behind me to each side as well as easily in front of me. So he gets this brief experience of ecstasy, of bliss, of union. And when he tries to acknowledge the guru after coming out of this union, um, the guru is like, don't bow to me. Like divine is equally in you as she is in me. Um, you know, God is in your temple also. I won't let divine mother touch my feet through your hands. So this is, this is the, the chapter on divine mother. And at the end, says devotees of all ages approaching the mother in a childlike spirit testify that they find her ever at play with childlike spirit within them sorry in master mahasaya's life the manifestations of divine play occurred on occasions important and unimportant in god's eyes nothing is large or small were it not for his perfectly nicety in constructing the, constructing the tiny atoms, could the skies where the profound structures of Vega Arcturus, distinctions of important and unimportant are surely unknown to the Lord, lest for want of a pin, the cosmos collapse. So like I'd mentioned before, could the divine be so intricately involved in your day-to-day -day life and your smaller unimportant things. And this is the, the, the paragraph where it says yes, pretty much um, in the form of divine mother. And it doesn't have to only be in the form of divine mother, but in some aspect of the divine recognizing that remember God is simple. We make everything else complicated and um, open yourself maybe to that possibility. Any questions on this one? I have a little drawing for you that may or may not work. I'm gonna to try to do the whiteboard thing. I tried it a moment ago and it seemed to work. Do you guys see this circle on my screen? Yes. Yeah, okay. So I'm writing with a mouse, so this is gonna be interesting, but I'm gonna make a circle inside of a circle. And then I make a bigger circle. Okay. So this is an example of our bodies. So this layer right here, actually let me make a little tiny spark right here. This is our, this is our spark of divinity right there. Okay, so this outer circle, I'm gonna just write P for physical. This is our physical body. And then, oops, I'm missing a circle. Wait, am I? No, I'm not. Okay, this layer right here, just inside, we'll call this the astral. A-S-T-R-A-L, astral. And then here, we'll call this inner circle C for causal. C-A-U-S-A-L, causal. And then this spark is basically our spark of the divine. Um, when... So this outer layer being the physical, this is obviously the aspect of our being that medicine would work on, right? So we take medicine to fix our physical ailments. Medicine will work on this layer. Um, this layer also has all the limitations of being physical. This is 
skin and the bones, right? This layer, astral layer, would be, for example, the layer where you might get acupuncture or Reiki done. So this is affecting the astral body. So energy medicine, etc., would work on astral body. And the causal body would be basically um, the aspect of you that is soul. So beyond the astral and even deeper soul or that spark of the divinity is causal. So when we die, we lose the physical. The physical body disappears, but we keep the astral body, which is this outer part and the spark. Um, a lot, so I'm speaking from this very weird place that I've learned through attending these yoga things. My teacher, his name is, is Dave Drew. He might still offer these courses. He's up in the North Shore, but he has sought out all of the masters to answer all of the questions. So when he teaches, he has this huge binder in front of him. And when we ask him a question, he just goes, hold on. And he opens up to a page and it has like multiple answers from all the sages that he sought out in India and around the world, um, asking these questions like what happens when we die and what part of us stays. So um, his answers aren't coming from him, but they're like, he's done his research his binders about this thick and he knows everything if you ever get a chance to go do his his studies on this book i'm sharing mostly what i've learned from it but um his presence is is just interesting and different um i'd all i'd recommend it um basically when we die our perception of our dead of ourselves it it can be whatever we want it to be but because we were so attached to the physical body we'll see ourselves like we look now or we'll see ourselves younger and healthier so i don't know if you've ever read stories of people that have out-of-body experiences say they die on an operating table they're standing in their body they have this like light body that looks like them and then they can see their physical body so they're able to see their astral body which is still made up of what looks like what they look like before, but it's just a vision or an attachment we had to that prior body. Um, really, we're just a spark of light and energy. So our perception goes to astral. And when we come back, we come back to finish more karma and then we pick up the physical body again. So this new physical body we have doesn't look the same, but it carries with it um, this actually carries with it the karmas from the past life. So we are then in this new physical body with these new karmas. Eventually, you'll burn away also your astral body, you know, like those um, uh, sitas or um, avatars. They've burnt away everything, and they're only left with that, that spark. So astral body goes to at some point. Because the astral body holds your karmas. So you can't get rid of your astral until you burn away all your karmas. So you're just going to keep coming back again and again and again until this karma's in here get burnt away.
So now we can go on to chapter 10. Any questions before we go on on this last chapter or what I just talked about? Um, I have a question. It might be a little off, but um, do you think it's possible if, um, with reincarnation that you can still be holding on to some extent past physical forms? If that makes sense. For sure. I think, um, I think when we reincarnate physically, what I've actually, what I've learned and what I've studied is, hmm, that's kind of an interesting question though, too. So when you say with physical forms, do you mean like similar appearances or do you mean like ailments you might have had physically that were karmic i mean ailments will always be karmic related so that's the hard so ailments anything that happens to us is karmic and that's really hard for some people to accept because even like children born with illnesses or like good bad things happening to good people you're like why does this happen from a yogic perspective um, karma is fully at play there and that they say children who have um, bad karmas or illnesses and diseases are evolved to the point where they don't need to live a full life in order to burn that last bit of karma they need to, they're trying to burn their karma quicker and and by coming into this life with illnesses and that might take them sooner they're burning that last shed of karma and able to then move on to the next. So they might come back and live a life of like a, a, a self-realized master in their next life, but they just have little shreds of karma to burn. And some of this is hard to like grasp, like in our group, when we studied this with our teacher, people were getting mad. People were like getting angry and like not liking it and everything, but I'm just going to share what he talked about. And what, what I've kind of come to terms with is even things like um, if you, if you, have an aborted baby or um, if that works out that way and you have to have an abortion or if you have um, miscarriages these souls are like i'm going to go into this body because it helps both of us so if i say had um, a miscarriage i had some karmas to burn through experiencing that and that baby that chose to then take form and soul within my body that left had just a shred of karma to burn. And so together we worked out karmas and it was meant to be. So really shitty things happening. However, if you were able to pull that curtain back and see things from an enlightened point of view, you would see how all karmas continue to be mitigated through things like that because you're paying off old karmas. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question about carrying over physical things, but um, physical things that manifest in our body are results of karma. Being okay. Burnt. That's interesting. Yeah. That's definitely an interesting. Yeah. Like think, <laughs> let's let it roll around in your brain a little bit. Yeah. Cause it's like, it's hard. It's challenging to grasp. And, um, you know, karmas can be individual, but they can also be collective. They can be familial. So you can be born into a family where your family collectively has been through a lifetime of certain things and you're together because you are all going to help each other burn karmas. Or if you look at the times we're having right now, collectively, you can have you can have karmas burnt in a society, in a culture, in a state, in a government, in like the world. And so, I mean, a yogi might look at this whole COVID thing and be like, 
we're all kind of working through some shit right now <laughs> and we're burning some karmas and experiencing some massive leaps in the direction we want to go, but it sucks in the meantime. So um, everything happening for a reason is part of that bigger picture that sometimes is hard to swallow. And remember also that I'd mentioned before, karma is coming around. I mean, they don't have to hit you as hard, they say, if you have a devotional practice. So meditation is one of those means of mitigating your karma. So say in a past life, um, you're still working out karmas of being a certain way or holding grudges or doing something very harmful to another um, it's all about intention when it comes to karma. So, um, you know, a past life, your intentions could be playing out in this life, but through this life, as you're evolving, meditating and, and, you know, like working here as yogis, as we all are, that karma that comes back around might not have to be so um, drastic and devastating if it's coming back as negative karma um, versus if we were just moving kind of blindly through it. So, and they say meditation is one way to not get the impact as powerfully of karmas coming back around. Okay. Heavy topics. Also, I know I'm talking a lot about gurus and you might be thinking like, well, where do I get my guru? Like, where do we find our guru? Gurus don't have to be in the body. So that's one thing that's, um, that's important to mention at this point is you don't have to find a physical guru. You can have a guru in Jesus. Look at how many people have gurus out of Jesus. You can have a guru out of Buddha. You can have a guru out of Yogananda. Um, if this, if Yogananda is calling to you and you can have a guru out of um, any masters that have come prior and um, anything that, a guru is basically the one that dispels darkness for you. And if studying a master or working with a master that has already left the body is, is one that does that for you, then it doesn't have to be someone you actually physically meet either. Chapter 10. This is where he actually meets his guru. So in this chapter, Mukunda goes, oh, he finishes high school and he does so kind of miraculously because he didn't study at all. He spent all his time meditating and like messing around, but he promised his dad that he would finish school. So um, he just by chance studies with this kid that knows everything, but he doesn't fill him in on Sanskrit. And then he prays to be helped. And then he finds this little book or no, these little debris of paper of Sanskrit blowing around and he picks them up and studies this poem and it actually helps him to pass his test. He gets by with just passing grades, but that's all his dad had asked him for. So um, that's a nice little beginning to the book is how he passed his test. And then he decides he's going to go to a hermitage, Benares hermitage um, and receive spiritual discipline. Um, and what's funny is, um, do you guys have any idea what kind of 
where he went like what's there are they are they bhakti yogis are they karma yogis are they yana yogis are they raja yogis you can make a guess if you want Well, they're definitely not meditational as much as he was. They're not they didn't like, Yeah, how he meditated all the time. Yeah, no, they were not a fan of that. So he chose to go to a karma yogi place. So karma yogi, they're always working. They're working because their work is their dedication to God. They work selflessly constantly. They're always organizing, always cleaning, always offering through their work. This is not the kind of yogi that... Um, Makunda is. He wants to sit and meditate to connect to God. So it's showing us the difference here between um, paths. You'll be called to one path more than another, and um, and that path will be the easiest one for you to follow. It'll be the one that connects you most to God. So a bhakti yogi will meditate. You also can find a lot of um, like the devotional chants. What's it called? Um, chants. Kirtan. Sorry, kirtan. Oh. Yeah, so kirtan is a form of devotional yoga. Um, so he ends up at this place where he's not appreciated because he's always meditating. He's never helping out. He's never contributing. He's never putting his hand in at anything. Um, they also go through a fast, which he cannot stand. He's never fasted in his life, and he's miserable. He wants to eat. Um, and at one point, he says, well, you know, what if I never get fed? And, and the guy says, well, then die if you have to. Um, realize that you're not surviving on food alone like would you actually say that you're surviving by food or or using or by not the power of god you know like use your devotion and don't believe that your nourishment and, and your survival is maintained through rice basically um also in this chapter the silver amulet disappears which is kind of foreshadowing the fact that he's about to find his guru. He doesn't make that, that connection right in this moment when he loses his amulet um, that he's been guarding for years. He's, he has it in an envelope. Um, but he says, mournfully, I tore open the envelope and made unmistakably sure it was gone and it had vanished. Um, but it did, say, it did say in the beginning when he got the amulet, it would, it would vanish when its purpose had been met. And so he's here. And um, one, of the, one of the people at the, the Hermitage he's at says, I need help. Come with me to the market. Run an errand with me. And so he goes, and it's here that he's walking through the market, and his feet start to, like, slow down. He sees this Christ-like uh, man standing down an alley, and, and he can't walk any further. And his feet get heavy, and he turns around, and his feet work, and he turns the other way, and they're heavy again. And um, so he follows his feet to his um his master and he finds his true guru finally he's been searching everywhere for his two true guru lahiri it's not lahiri it's um where is his name i know it and i can't believe it's leaving me right now oh sri yukteswar so he meets sri yukteswar here and um sri yukteswar takes him in and remember i said that you will find gurus if you're in that point of searching for a guru. It's going to be a guru that you've known in a past life. So as he meets his guru, he's like, I remember this face. Like, it's all coming back to me. I've seen this face in my meditations. And what Yukteswar tells him is to go back to Calcutta, go back to your family. And does Mukunda want to hear that? No, he's very disappointed. And it's just shocking. Like, he, 
he straight up disobeys. He's, he's been looking for this guru for all this time. And then the guru gives him one instruction. He's like, not doing it, not doing it. You know, like his pride is in the way. He doesn't want to go home because everybody's expecting him to show up back at the door, um, you know, failing in his mission to go and do this thing. And his pride is in the way. And, um, and it's just funny, like our human nature is, is just like that too. You know, like we find what we're looking for and then we like walk away from it. We find what we're looking for and then we don't follow through with it. And, and this is just an example of that. And eventually he does go home. He realizes he's not in the right place. And he returns home to Calcutta where his family is. And, um, and he, I think he's supposed to wait there for like four weeks before he goes back to his guru. So in the next chapters, we'll start to read about his experience with his avatar. Um, on that page towards the end, you see the picture of Sri Yukteswar and he just looks so like regal, like grandfather-ish and wise to me. Um, and he is an avatar. So he has already experienced enlightenment could have gone beyond and just merged with the oneness and then chose instead to come back and be here as a guide for humankind in whatever way, whatever, um, whatever he's chosen to help move humankind to enlightenment. So I think, let's see if I have any more notes on that. Let me know if you guys have any questions. So guru is not a god, correct? Guru is a, I mean, you could call guru a god because guru is an enlightened being who is just using a body to be here on a planet, on our planet to enlighten us. So technically, yes, he's a self-realized master and self-realized meaning that he's merged already. He or she has merged with the, the divine already and is the divine reincarnated as a body. So um, a true guru is actually an enlightened being who's already made that connection and shred, shed their last bit of ego and karma. So that would mean that Jesus was God. That would mean that Buddha was God. Krishna was God. All of those masters. And there's others in the body that we just don't know about because they haven't created worldwide religions the way that Jesus and Buddha did. But um, it is said that there are at any given time a handful of gurus or enlightened beings that are true gurus here on the planet in their body, sometimes more than others, um, to help just lead mankind to enlightenment. Because, you know, the last chapters that were the earlier, God is simple, you know, mm -hmm. making it simple. But because we're having those gurus, there are many religions like Christianity, you know, Israel, Muslims. So because of gurus, things are getting complicated, you know, because they battle each other, fight each other. They don't mm -hmm. want to unite. Mm -hmm. I was like, God is trying to make it simple, but because gurus, things are getting complicated. And I, I found some conflicts there. So I was like, yeah. So I understand that. Or not. Yeah. So gurus come. Um, um, we 
invoked our power and our narrow-mindedness and our egos and then said everybody else was wrong because if you listen and talk if you listen to the teachings from jesus and buddha and these masters they will never say like i am the only way and if you compare their teachings they're all very similar they're all saying the same thing about christ about consciousness you know and about even jesus was a meditator if you read about it and i think that humans and our mankind are uh, tendencies then created religions and then said mine is right yours is wrong and it became political and and you know religion actually moved away I think in many ways from what they were preaching about in the first place wouldn't I don't know if you would, could agree with me but um, there's an example that I love about five blind men in, in a room with an elephant Five, five blind men in a room, a, a room with an elephant. And one blind man finds the tail. They go in, to this, they're going to come out and describe to people what an elephant is. They go into this room, there's an elephant. One man finds the tail, one man finds the, the ear, one man finds the trunk, one man finds the body, one man finds the leg. They come out and they're like, an elephant is narrow as a whip. And then another guy says, an elephant is flat and wide. And another guy says, like, no, an elephant's like a tree trunk. But they come out and they start arguing and fighting and killing each other because their experience of the divine is not what yours is. And mine is right. And mine is the only one, but they were all experienced an aspect of the divine just in different ways. And look at Jesus and Buddha and they came at different times and different landscapes. They use different parables like olive branches or bamboo, but that's what they had to talk and share about God. And then we take those and we're like, this is the right one. No, this is the right one. So I think I get what you're saying that religions have definitely separated us, but it's also the nature of mankind to do that. And we as becoming more enlightened about this can see that. And we're like a different, we're moving into a space where we're starting to notice the unity behind all religions. And there's a movement in that direction, perhaps like away from being like, look at the past, like look how medieval it's been in the past with religions and wars and, and it still is that way today. But I feel like there is a movement towards seeing the bigger picture too. So. I like that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Anybody else? And you can add to that too. I just kind of went on my own tangent about it, but. No, I agree with that because one of the things every time I think about the Bible, because I was raised um, Catholic, it's that I have to constantly remind myself that the Bible itself is an interpretation done by someone else of what was originally taught by Jesus. And then, well then, and then they condensed it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so and I'm always changed. curious. Yeah. yeah, I'm always curious about the other books of the time period of the Bible writing, because it's, there's more out there than just that book. And if you look into it too, um, Yogananda was a big Jesus follower. He loved Jesus. He wrote books about Jesus. He wrote books about Christianity. Um, he wrote books about, I actually had a book down here. I don't have it right here on me, but um, he talked a lot about Jesus being like a, a guru. And he talked a lot about other religions and um, very embraceive of just like of mm -hmm. all of these teachings from all over. So mm -hmm. um, in no way was he saying like, this is the only way he's just out there to experience the divine, which is ultimately what every religion, if you really narrow it down, we're all seeking that experience of the divine. It's just 
each religion has its own little rules and stuff on how to get there. Um, mm -hmm. But ultimately pointing in the same direction. So. I guess that brought us to the end of what we've read so far to chapter 10. Um, you guys have any questions or thoughts or comments? We're good. More interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, you can start to just ponder things like reincarnation over the next couple days and your own karma and all of that good stuff. We'll do chapter 11 to, so we're on chapter 11, the two penniless boys, which is a really fun one to, let's see, let's see, we've got some long chapters coming up. Let's do, are you guys comfortable with 11 to 14 for next time? That would be chapter 109 to 160, or do you want to go, you want to just keep it in, ten, in fives? Actually, um, that one's pretty short. We can do 15. You guys can do it. We can do it, right? 109 to 180? Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. That way we can just keep it in the, the five chapters. This is a good amount of time to spend. Cool. So chapter 11 to chapter 20, uh, 15, chapter 15, 6, 15 for next week. Well, thank you guys. This has been fun. And happy reading. And I'll be in touch. Thank, thank you. you. Have Bye. a good rest of your day. See you later. Yeah.